0: Welcome to Episode 179, Coming Out, A Trauma-Based Experience, featuring John Sovek, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn. Grow. Shine. My name is John Sovek, and I am a queer therapist. My pronouns are he, him, and I'm located in Pasadena, California. I'm here today to join you in a conversation discussing the ideas of hypervigilance and LGBTQIA identity development. So I think this is a really important concept for us to be exploring because over the years and the work I've done and the research I've done, I've come to a deep understanding that the coming out process in itself for many people is a trauma-based experience. And for clinicians, I think it's important when you're going to work with the LGBTQIA plus community to know that this may be something that is in the background of many of your clients' lived experience. And so I think it is our due diligence to join together and start to have a conversation and look more deeply into this process. Let me give you a little bit of roadmap of what we're going to be chatting about today just to keep us on board. So we're going to be talking about the coming out process. We're going to be looking at trauma response. We're going to be exploring a bit deeper into that trauma response and looking at a process called hypervigilance. We're going to look at LGBTQ development, how we can heal from trauma and create the best support for our clients. So to understand the whole concept of coming out maybe being a trauma-based experience, I want to share with you some of the, the verbiage, the words that I hear from clients when they come out. And those might include things like being in shock, denial, or disbelief, maybe feeling sad or hopeless. A lot of clients will report that they withdraw from others, and they might have some anger or some mood swings and find it difficult to concentrate, or maybe feel disconnected, or even numb at times while they're trying to figure out this process of coming out. The thing that's really fascinating, and especially for those of you who already work in trauma, you will probably have already picked up that those keywords are often words that people use to describe the trauma response. And I think it's really important is to see that parallel to understand the journey that LGBTQ people, community, and clients may be going through. I also think it's important to recognize that we now look at trauma as sometimes that has a generational component to it, has a community component to it. And as members of the LGBTQ community, It will often show up not just as the trauma that I may have experienced in my own coming out process, but a community-based trauma that can be long-lasting. One of the places for us to maybe start our conversation today is to really look at the idea of what is this coming out process we're even talking about. So we're going to take a little time machine and go way back to the 1970s, late 1970s, and look at what's known as the caste model of homosexual identity. Now, a thing to understand is that this model, as we look at it now, is incredibly flawed. It was created from a very small sampling of people, and it took into assumption concepts that did not recognize the multi-community of the LGBTQ world, it did not take into other communities of color and people who are coming from different walks of life and opportunities. It is the grandparent, though, of most of our work, and most of the common current models are still based on some of the work that was done by Cass in 1979. So let's just join together there and take a quick look through some of these identity phases of this coming out model. Now, remember, there's not a quiz on this at the end. <laughs> well, actually, there is a quiz. There's a CE quiz. But this will help you just understand the basics of the coming out model. So in stage one in the cast model, we look at identity awareness. And this is a moment where an individual who is part of the LGBTQIA community recognizes themselves as somehow being different from the other people in their world. For me, it was a moment as a young gay boy to realize where all of my male friends were kind of getting all giggly and squishy about the girls in our class, I was feeling different attractions and interests. So I became aware of this difference of who I was. In stage two, we look at a thing called identity comparison. And this is where an individual starts to compare their feelings and emotions to those identify as heterosexual and cisgender. So I start to compare how I'm feeling about my attractions, my internal sense of self, as compared to all of my cis-straight friends. The next step would be described as identity tolerance, and this is where I as an individual start to tolerate my identity as maybe not being part of that cis-hetero story. Next, we look at identity acceptance, and this is where we start to create acceptance about this new identity and, and maybe become more active in the LGBTQIA community. We move towards identity pride, the next stage, and this is where perhaps I become very proud of my identity and, and live out loud and proud. And then in the final stage of the caste model, we have identity synthesis. And this means that the individual fully accepts and synthesizes their LGBTQI plus identity. So this is just one model. But I want you to be aware of some of the key words that I just described. These ideas of acceptance, about immersed in, about synthesizing. And if we look at many of the other models that have been put into play over the years. In 1994, the Daljali model came into place, which is more of a lifespan developmental model. And it has things like developing intimacy and claiming identity and creating a personal sense of self. If we look at the 1996 mccarran fassinger identity model of lesbian identity development, once again, we hear little buzzwords in there. Things such as exploration and, and, and commitment to self-knowledge and self-fulfillment and, and crystallization of identity. And in 2004, the Istarlev model of transgender emergence came onto the scene. But once again, we hear those words in there, these exploration words, these looking at identity and integrating and synthesis. And if you take all of those words, which individually sound powerful, exploration, synthesis, integration, awareness, acceptance, pride, But if you put those through the lens of someone who is in a trauma-based body, a body that is not able to process all of the information going through it, suddenly we have a a collision course for an internal identity catastrophe. How are we supposed to integrate and synthesize when our bodies are shut down and in a trauma-based response? Now, I'm going to start sharing with you a little kind of a, let's call it a trauma 101. If you look through the Clearly Clinical Library, there's a whole collection of beautiful trauma trainings if you want to deepen your knowledge. But if we look at the most basic levels of trauma response, we're going to start by looking at the autonomic nervous system. So the autonomic nervous system really plays a a very significant role in our emotional and physiological responses to stress and trauma. This is the machine that, that helps us to create and relate to our world. Now first, we have the sympathetic nervous system. And this is the part of the nervous system that we associate with that, that trauma response, that fight-or-flight response. And it releases cortisol and adrenaline throughout the bloodstream. It's the one that, that brings us up. You know, if we're out walking in the woods and we see a bear coming towards us, the sympathetic system activates us so we can respond in that moment And in some ways, it's a very good part of our system because it allows us to strengthen up and face a traumatic situation. Then, after the bear walks away and turns off the path and leaves us, our system can start to settle down again. And this is where the parasympathetic nervous system takes over. It puts the brakes on all that sympathetic nervous system response so the body stops all these stress chemicals and starts moving more towards relaxation, digestion, and regeneration. So we have this, this sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system working in a rhythm. So something brings us up with a sympathetic system, after the trauma, the response, the trigger has moved on, the sympathetic step, the parasympathetic steps in and brings us back down to homeostasis. The challenge we have, though, is when there's trauma in the body, in the brain, it interferes with the rhythmic balance of the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems. It gets in the way, and it kind of lifts us to this much more triggered energy in our body because we see everything as a potential danger. And what happens over time is these responses to trauma become much more automatic. The results of neurons in our brains firing in patterns that have been ingrained or baked into the brain. The brain circuitry that is activated during a traumatic event will often continue to guide our responses for years to come, perhaps even all of our lives. An example that I like to use with that is, so let's say you're in a car accident, and you got hit by a blue car. So a normal traumatic response would be saying, hey, cars freak me out a little bit. I need to do some work about this. And then maybe a blue car is even more triggering. But in a trauma-based body and mind, sometimes even the color blue will become a trigger. And so it starts to guide how we respond to moments as we move through life. The limbic system of the body is what's involved in that defense circuitry. And therefore, our responses to threat won't often be logical, they won't be reasons, or they won't even be thought out. You might find yourself, once again, if we use this blue car analogy, in a room that has colored blue, and all of a sudden you start feeling really triggered for no reason. Most people see blue as a relaxing color, but the way your mind and body react to blue says no. Blue is not a safe and refined and relaxing color for me. So when these mechanisms go into play, what are what are some of the ways that we actually respond to that? Well, one of them is we can dissociate from our body. And this is a coping mechanism that involves the brain basically disconnecting from all the circuitry that keeps us aware of what's happening in our lives, in our bodies, in our immediate reality. It can often look like someone is sitting across from you and they're spaced out, that their focus shifts. And if it's with a client who's sitting across from you, they may simply stare off into space while being either non-responsive or or even minimally responsive to questions or other stimuli. Another piece of reaction that happens is what we call tonic immobility. And this essentially involves being unable to move or talk at all. The person who is in tonic immobility might still be alert and aware, Or they may be experiencing dissociated at the same time, which disconnects them from being aware of what's happening in their own bodies. So in tonic immobility, we have a person who is actually unable to move or talk. And some of the conditions that are known to trigger this immobility are extreme fear, physical contact with the perpetrator, physical restraint, and the perception of inescapability we also have another survival mechanism called collapsed immobility. And often you might hear this described as playing possum, which erroneously suggests that this is a conscious choice which is that it's not actually available to the person to make it a time. It's actually an automatic response versus someone choosing to play possum. Now, this whole concept may have originally involved to take the stimulation away from a predator's brain That would trigger them into wanting to kill or eat their prey. So, if we lower our resistance in the world we walk around, then we're avoiding any of this type of response in the world. And remember, when we're in a trauma based body, we often see everyone and everything around us as a predator. Some of the things that trigger this collapsed immobility include. Extreme fear, physical contact with the perpetrator, physical restraint, and once again, that perception of inescapability. Now, moving away from those more in-depth concepts to the more practical ones that people experience, the first one of those might be freeze. And freeze is that moment where our bodies shut down where the blood moves away from the external organs, moves into places of our muscles so we can respond and use all of the physical body to react to the trigger in the area. Things important to understand about freeze is freeze is that moment where we're actually gathering information. It's a place where we're making a decision, is that bear, we talked about earlier, coming down the pathway going to be a danger to me? A response might be we might want to flee, we might want to leave, we might want to go into flight mode. And in flight, what our body's telling us is that thing is too dangerous, I need to get away from it. It's a big scary bear, I'm a small person, I need to run as fast as I can to get myself to safety. We might perhaps move into the response of fight. And in fight, our body is gearing up to take on whatever that trigger is. In this case, that bear coming down the path, somehow our body or our mind tells us we are going to fight it, and that's how we're going to react in this trauma response model. Another piece that comes into play that we're looking at more recently is what we call the fawning response. So a fawning response is that we try to pacify the person or experience that is the trigger. In this case, with our big lumbering bear coming down the sidewalk, coming down the path actually, we might reach into our bag and start putting food out for it. We're trying to pacify this danger so that we can move it out of our space. It's important to understand that this is one level of trauma response. In LGBTQIA people, all of these forms of trauma will be playing out, or may be playing out. But I want to make you aware of another piece of this trauma story. And that's what we're calling hypervigilant. And it's simply an elevated, heightened level of vigilance in the world. The brain becomes more and more vigilant after a traumatic incident in an attempt to keep us safe, to protect us. Our, Our cells become far more sensitive to any potential indicators of threat in the environment, even things not previously associated with trauma. So go back to being hit by the blue car, being afraid of cars, being triggered by the color blue. And what can happen is this can all lead to a really vicious cycle where a person becomes more and more reactive to these potential triggers. When we look at the limbic system being part of this process, we also need to understand that in hypervigilance, it may be a top-down processing versus a bottom-up processing. So in bottom-up processing, what happens is there's a stimulus and our body has a reaction, and then our brain figures out what's going on. In top-down processing, our brain sees something and chooses to make a response. So because in bottom-up processing, we're using the limbic system, the amygdala, they can become really hypersensitive. And it's almost as if the amygdala is saying to you, look, I'm going to protect you first, and you can ask questions later. And as the amygdala has more opportunities to react and overreact in response to more and more stimuli and situations, well, these ones that don't actually represent a threat anymore. And the amygdala is telling the body, hey, let's release adrenaline and cortisol and norepinephrine into the body. And what's going to happen is over time, this person's going to have an increased startle reflex. They may become jumpy at even the most sudden noises or surprises. What you might see in a hypervigilant person is a dilation of the pupils. You might hear an increased heart rate. You might even have elevated blood pressure in this person. And what might happen is to keep themselves safe, this person might create almost an obsessive avoidance of perceived threats, and have a constant scanning energy of looking for threats around them. Because this level is so high, there's often an overestimation of any situation's threatening environment. So I want to share with you how this might look for an LGBTQIA person and what the experience might feel like for them. Remember earlier, I talked at a very young age, a lot of queer kids understand that they are not part of the, what we might call normal social construct, the idea of a cisgender heteronormative world. And in understanding that difference, what kids will say is, oh, I am different, there may or might be something wrong with me. In that moment when they're seeing, oh, boys do this, girls do that, straight people do this or that, they start to feel a little bit of isolation. They start to feel a little bit of their difference in the world. And as young kids, what do we want most usually (laughs) is we want to fit in in some way. And so we start to become very vigilant to the world around us. We start to become aware of how language is used around us. We start to become aware of how someone who may be just slightly out of the social construct norm of heteronormative and cisgender is being teased or bullied by the other students, staff, faculty, staff, parents in the community. And so that sends us a message that we need to be really careful. And I want to send with you some adult versions that are are absolutely true from my life. One example might be, I'm married, I've been with my partner for 21 years at this point, and when we go out for the evening, let's say we've gone to a movie, and it's a fun movie, we have a great time, we're walking back to the car, and all we want to do as a couple is simply hold hands as we're walking together. What you might notice is both of us will scan the area we'll look right, we'll look left, we'll notice who's in the area, and then we'll make a decision whether or not it's safe for us to hold hands. And if you remember, that scanning is part of hypervigilance. Now, I'm a person who's very affirmed in my queer identity, but this is a natural fabric of who I am and how I work through the world. And it's important to understand that any LGBTQIA client may be having those type of scanning experiences, whether it's with you, whether it's on their way to see you, whether it's with their family, whether it's walking around in the world. So being aware of how this can affect my experience on a very, very practical day-to-day interaction is important for clinicians to understand. So, how might we arrive to this? As I mentioned a moment ago, as kids, if we're part of the LGBTQ community, we recognize and know that there is a difference about who we are. And in looking at the 2021 Gleason National School Climate Survey, that's the Gay, Lesbian, Straight Education Network, every two years they do an online survey of LGBTQIA kids. I believe in the 21 survey that I'm referring to, they had over 25,000 respondents. And so this is going to give you a really, really key look into the lives of queer kids in their schools. So during this time, almost 60% of LGBTQ students reported feeling unsafe at school because of their sexual orientation. 45% of LGBTQ students felt unsafe at school because of their gender expression. Almost 70% of LGBTQ students report that they were verbally harassed in school. They were called names or threatened simply because of who they are or who they are perceived to be. Almost 30% of LGBTQ students report that they were being physically harassed, pushed, or shoved around in school. And then a really telling number that reflects how our society works now, especially for kids, is almost 50% of LGBTQ students experienced some type of electronic harassment in the past year. Now, perhaps when you were younger, you might have a rough day at school, you would go home, you might have dinner, maybe watch some television, My personal recovery was reading books, go to bed, wake up the next morning, and kind of feel that I was prepared to step back into this world again. Well, because there's now a -a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week experience of social media and the potential of electronic harassment, these kids are not having any type of recovery time. And if we look at the whole model of trauma and stress and hypervigilance, when we start stacking these experiences, one on top of the other, without any moment for the body to move into that parasympathetic energy, we're looking at a body that's constantly dealing with trauma. And that's challenging. Another thing that's really important for any of you who are joining me for this conversation day to understand that 20 to 35% of LGBTQ youth have made suicide attempts. We're not talking suicide ideation, we're actually talking about suicide attempts. And when we look here in the US, for most adolescents, that rate is somewhere between the 9 to 14% rate. So we're looking at more than double for LGBTQ youth. If you look at especially trans kids, those numbers rise up into 40-45%. And if you look at trans children of color, those numbers run up into the 50 percentile. And I have to tell you that a lot of the kids that I work with, the way that they come to find me is that they have been in the hospital because they attempted suicide. And in the hospital, they come out to their parents for the first time. And then the parents with the advice of the hospital reach out to me and we start our work together. But we have kids these days who believe that it was so tough for them to be LGBTQIA that the option of killing themselves seems like the safer choice to make. So now let's bring this into a kind of a more lifespan version of why LGBTQ people might also be feeling trauma and hypervigilance. Uh, first of all, being LGBTQIA plus puts us in a minority community. We're either a gender minority or a sexual minority. And it's very well documented that minority stress plays a huge part in how we feel about ourselves and how we move through the world, especially when we're looking at a world that's based on heterocentric societal norms. There's also potentially a barrier where we have an internalized LGBTQ-phobia. Maybe in the past you've heard this called internalized homophobia. It's this idea that something inside of us sees us as less than or bad because we are internalizing the story from society that LGBTQ people are less than. It's going to be really hard to be strong in your world when you're experiencing stigma and prejudice and discrimination all of these pieces are going to play out as we are developing into LGBTQIA plus people. It's even more challenging when we look at minor, multiple minority stress. And this is really the addressing the idea that people who may identify as LGBTQIA plus may have other minority statuses that are also playing on top. And when you stack those on top of each other, it creates an even more trauma-based, more hyper-vigilant energy inside of us because we're looking at multiple levels of place where we need to try and fit in and try and manage our very essence in a public forum. So be really aware of these stacked layers of trauma that may exist with multiple minority stress. So how might someone be managing that trauma, that hyper energy we're talking about? Well, there are some survival mechanisms that I think we can look at. And for me, I always list this one first because it was my survival mechanism, my coping mechanism. And that was perfectionism. I figured out at a really young age that if I could be perfect, that it meant that I would not have any reason for people to be able to tear me down. It put a wall around me that I was, had it all together. And if I could appear to have it all together, then I couldn't be hurt by others. What are some other coping mechanisms we look at? Maybe a drive for success. A need to be in control of every single moment that a person's experience. experienced. Sometimes we find that people who are in this hypervigilant trauma-based body will emotionally distance themselves from others. They might show a certain ambivalence to the world. I don't feel anything. I don't notice anything. Sometimes it'll lead to a sense of isolation. If I lock myself away from the world, I can't get hurt. And also substance use. Substance use is a very very high coping mechanism that we see in hypervigilance and trauma-based work. It's even higher, though, in the LGBTQ community. We're looking at almost 20 to 30% of LGBTQ people are estimated to have a substance use disorder, and that's from the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, SAMHSA, and you can see this information on their website. 20 to 30% of people with a substance use disorder And this isn't just casual drinking. This is high-level substance use disorder that is interfering with people's lives. And if we look at statistics across America, normally 12 to 15% is where we're seeing for a general population with substance use disorders. So why might this show up so much in the LGBTQ community? Well, there's a thing that we joke about sometimes and call you know, social lubrication. That first drink allows me to be comfortable. So if I'm a gay man and I'm going to a bar and I walk in and I'm in a traumatized body, having a drink will take some of that anxiety and stress down. And it might make my evening a little bit easier. The thing is, one drink might turn to two, might turn to seven, and this becomes a regular habit for me, and then all of a sudden, that is how I socialize in my queer world. Also important to understand that parts of the LGBTQ community uh, show off a culture of party and designer drugs, where what you are on is part of the experience of how cool you are in that community. Many of the social settings that LGBTQ people find themselves in promote drug, alcohol, and tobacco use. There's incredible ageism in the queer community. I remember when I was younger that I was told that when I turned 30 that I kind of became irrelevant in the gay community. I've been told by others now that that age is down to about 26 or 27. But this idea, this ageism that sits there in the community, and at a very young, ripe age, where we're really in the prime of who we are, we're being told by our community that we do not belong. There's also a lot of stigma in the community and a lot of discrimination, not just from the world of cisgender people and heteronormative people, but also within the community itself. And to understand this internal community discrimination is important because when you have people who are parts of communities of color, they are going to need to be able to share that with you to understand that multiple minority stress stacking that we talked about earlier. And we do know, once again, as we said just a few moments ago, substance use can often be a trauma response. We're simply trying to react to that sympathetic nervous system being so incredibly activated. And if we can use drugs or alcohol or food or gambling to take that down, then all of a sudden we're feeling a little bit better inside. So I know I've been talking a lot here. Let's all take a breath. Ah, <sighs> Let it go. Because i still got some more material to share with you. And I want to make sure that you take the time maybe to listen to this recording more than once to give yourself some space to really take in the concepts that we're sharing together. Because this is not just a, a simple experience. This is something that is affecting the fabric of many people who are part of the LGBTQIA community. So let's return to the coming out process and how it might feel for some people. As mentioned earlier, we had all these words that I shared that related to stress, things like fear and internalized anger and rage and mood swings. There is also an energy of feeling really good when we come out, a uh, freedom, something unlocks in our heart and our souls that allows us to grow and become more fully who we are as LGBTQIA people in the world. We do find, though, that for some people, coming out is not an option that feels safe for them. And it will negatively affect their life experience through stress, depression, and suicidal ideation. Coming out, we often associate with younger kids, teenagers, adolescents. But coming out can happen any time during the lifespan. So I think it's important to understand that this can play out in anybody's life at any moment when they're willing and able to step forward and speak authentically about who they are. As mentioned earlier, when we're looking at the coming out process, a minority identity leads to additional stressors that are related to our perception of ourselves as a stigmatized and often devalued minority. And those types of stigmatization and devaluation hit really deep inside our psyche and they start to spin a story that we as queer people are less than. And they're often accompanied with this being out in the world process, experiences of discrimination and even violence. And these are ongoing repetitive stressors for LGBTQI individuals and remember. I may experience that violence towards my community myself. It might be a physical attack. It might be a verbal attack. It might be reading and hearing about policies that are trying to stigmatize and and erase our culture as LGBTQIA plus people. All of those layers are repetitive stressors. They're going to make it more and more difficult for my body and my mind to heal from traumatized experiences. So, are there some benefits coming out? Absolutely. We get the opportunity to live more honestly. Um, we can develop our self esteem. We can start to build really genuine relationships, both friendships and, and partners. It sometimes helps to alleviate some of that stress and fear of, of holding on to a secret really deeply. And it allows us as LGBTQI+ people to connect to our community and start to build a larger social circle. There are also some risks in that very same process of coming out. There's risks of rejection. There's risks of being disowned by our family, facing discrimination, harassment, abuse. We may lose a community that we've been part of. I know for a lot of LGBTQ people who have a strong religious or spiritual community, often the idea of coming out is a multi-pronged thing for them because they feel they may lose the approval of that spiritual or religious community. They may be ostracized. They may lose it altogether. And that can be a really hard thing for a person to go through if that spiritual or religious community has been a big part of their lives. So we're looking at all of these layers of things that may affect an LGBTQ people, cause those stressors, and lead to this idea of being in a hypervigilant, traumatized, stressed out state. So I want to take us a little shift now, and I want to look at what you as clinicians, as owners of treatment centers, as teachers in schools, as maybe people even in the corporate world can do to start creating a safe space for LGBTQ people in your environments. So the first thing is what we're doing right now. And that's to start building a knowledge of LGBTQ issues. And this isn't a one and done experience. This is an ongoing exploration, a learning process of who are LGBTQ people in my community? Who are the thought leaders in my world today? Who are people who have been thought leaders in the past? It's being willing to step into our queer world, our queer history, and to learn more about who we are as people. I also think it's very important for any provider to have a knowledge of relevant services. Sometimes uh, clinicians will believe that they have all of the resources their client needs. But I think it's so important for us to look out into the world and find out what we don't know, to know who's in the community that could be of assistance when you're working with LGBTQ clients who want to move into questions and explorations that you may not be 100% prepared for. And this could be things that are, are big, mental health issues. It could be something small. What are support groups in your area? Who are the electrolysis people in your community who might be of assistance to a trans person? Who are the doctors in your area who are affirming towards LGBTQ community members? Knowing these can be a great plus in being supportive for your LGBTQIA client. Be aware that it's so important to have respect, not just for LGBTQIA client, but for all of our clients. And in those moments where your client wants to come and share something with you, that might be a little bit scary, a little bit uncomfortable for them. And they may even think a little bit uncomfortable for you. Bring your highest level of respect into the room to be present with your client. Also be aware, that there are so many unique challenges that are facing LGBTQIA people when they come in for care. Remember, a lot of them may have had a very negative experience with a caregiver in the past. We know especially with transgender clients and non-binary clients, one of the biggest obstacles to helping them receive the care that they need is previous negative experiences with healthcare providers. And when they've been misgendered, misnamed, when they've been made fun of, or either overtly or covertly in a treatment center, that's going to affect their willingness and ability to come in and work with you and be present. Earlier I mentioned know what the relevant services are in your community. I also encourage you to be willing to make referrals. If you are a cisgender, heterosexual clinician, and you find that you have very strong feelings that may be negative towards the LGBTQIA community, or you feel overwhelmed or undereducated in this particular population, please know who's in your area that you can refer to. Know who you can reach out for consultation to help make that decision to make that referral. Because when we're looking for my best care as an LGBTQIA client, it's really important to make referrals. And also be willing to connect with us as LGBTQ people. We're kind of cool. We're kind of interesting. And When we make that connection with a client, we see them, and that makes for a space where we can start working on the trauma and the hypervigilance. So what are some of the trauma modalities that maybe some of you are trained in? Um, We have cognitive processing therapy, EMDR. We have brain spotting, hypnotherapy, TRM, somatic therapy. All of these things can help to be part of the support system for an LGBTQI plus person to really look at the potential developmental trauma they may have experienced where they're coming out. I always like to go back to some of those Erickson uh, stages. And if we look at adolescence, that's when we're doing um, identity development. We're really looking at who we are going to be in the world. And so if that moment has been traumatized in some way, using these modalities can help an LGBTQIA plus plus (laughs) person body and mind move through the process and relax and become more present. So if you do not do any of these types of trauma modalities, find someone in your area who does or go and get training yourself. Um, Opinion here and opinion only, I strongly believe that for most uh, clinicians these days, having some awareness of a trauma modality process is a really important thing to have for your clinicians. So how will it help your LGBTQIA plus clients? Once again, it's a way to move into that deeper work to help them understand why they may be having the reactivity they're having in the world. So let's say in the process of using some of these modalities, you're also trying to help your client just make it through each day. Well, here are some simple healing techniques that we know can help with a traumatized body to bring it back to homeostasis. And one of the most basic levels we can look at is exercise. (laughs) Now, we know, as we spoke earlier, that trauma can disrupt the body's natural equilibrium. Um, freezing the body in this state of hyperarousal and fear. And once again, we've got all this adrenaline and cortisol racing through the body, and the kidneys and liver are trying to process it all out. Well, when we have some exercise in place, it helps to burn off some of that adrenaline and cortisol. And so this is a beautiful way for the body to take care of itself, maybe even release some endorphins, so that the exercise and movement can help to start repair the nervous system. And when we talk about exercise, we don't mean that a person has to go to the gym and take, you know, an hour and a half spin class to, to work out all their demons. No, sometimes we're talking about as simple things as simple as taking a walk every day. Something might be doing a gentle yoga class to start to build movement into the body as part of a person's regular day-to-day experience. And the thing that's really beautiful about it is we build this system of exercise with a person that it starts to help them heal their body. And as their body starts to heal and they start to feel better, it makes them stronger and more available to do the trauma-based work. One really interesting sidebar to know about um, exercise as a healing technique for trauma is we actually find that exercise that is rhythmic and engages the whole body is actually best. So something like being on an elliptical, or a bike, or running, all of those things that have a simple rhythmic energy to them, help the body to to manage its own well-being, to come to a homeostasis, and it also allows the mind to quiet down. So just an interesting way that we're looking at how exercise helps. Some other simple healing techniques that you could bring into your practice. Mindful breathing. We know for managing stress and anxiety, there are lots of different types of of breaths that people are encouraging. Square breathing, longer exhale breathing, exhaling through a straw. This idea, though, of mindful breathing helps the body to understand that it's actually okay. A really fascinating thing that has come to light in trauma-based work is that if we can work with someone to do a longer, deeper inhale, and then an even longer exhale, the body feels like it's in a safe space. That longer exhale lets the shoulders drop. It lets the muscles relax. And when the body feels that it's taking in those deep breaths, All of a sudden, it's like the message is, oh, I must be safe. I'm taking these deep breaths. And then that has a cascade effect on the rest of the body, helping to come back to center. You can also use grounding techniques. There are a lot of these in somatic work that really about like getting the feet in the floor, in havening. There's work that has to do with stimulation and EMDR. There's bilateral stimulation. All of these types of grounding techniques can help an LGBTQIA plus person work through the process of their body as they're doing the deeper healing work with you. Now, once again, a little sidebar, I am a yoga teacher, so I am highly recommending that you work with clients or even yourself to look at yoga as a really beautiful place to heal a traumatized body. And once again, it doesn't have to be the level seven class where you're putting your foot behind your head. It can be a simple, gentle, yin restorative class that helps self-regulate the nervous system. And there's a cool thing about these, these healing techniques, these simpler ones, is when a person learns that they can actually regulate their nervous system, they start to become excited about this process of change. They're learning how to change how their body goes into arousal and how it calms down. So oftentimes when we're working with clients who are in the coming out process, we need to have a a little bit more information about how this all played out for them to understand how to best address their needs if we're looking at a trauma-based treatment. Oftentimes when we first start talking with our clients, they may give you what I like to call a first layer account. And it'll be based on the kind of questions you asked and, and more, of a, more of a generalized response about the details of what that process was like for them. A client's response, though, may actually serve as a cue for some other memories or elements of the experience. And that's where you get to step in. Listen really carefully for cues that describe smells or sounds or sensory data. Because that will allow us to build a series of questions that then can move deeper into the body's experience of trauma. And these are, these are little nuggets of gateway information that will assist you in helping your clients move through this experience. And then what we can do is we can actually use these additional questions to peel back the layers of the client's memory to allow them to really address any experiences of trauma they may have witnessed during the coming out process or the actual traumatic process of coming out. One of the techniques that I think can be really powerful to help an LGBTQIA plus person whose body has been living in hypervigilance is to do a process that I have to call coming out again to themselves. Now as a client starts to release the trauma of coming out, we can encourage them to start creating a definition of who they want to be in the world going forward. They can yen the take that, that positive self-description and build an image of themselves moving through their world safely and successfully. And in that safety, they might start finding social engagement, places where they feel affirmed and welcome as LGBTQIA people. And what they're doing in this process is developing a healthy awareness of their identity. We're going against that trauma, hypervigilance story that's been on a hamster wheel in their brain for years, which has been flooding their body with response chemicals. We're helping them create a healthy awareness of who they can be in the world. And one of the things that I sometimes do with clients, and they have a really good response to this, is we actually explore coming out models together. I'll bring some in. I'll have them look them up online. We'll talk about them, both the pros and the cons. And they'll see that and start to identify where they were on that process, how it was for them. And uh, it can be a really cool form of psychoeducation. Another thing, when we're doing this reauthentication of the coming out process, I encourage people to find ways to create what I call a family of choice. For a lot of LGBTQ people, the coming out process can cause rifts in their family unit. And if those rifts occur, sometimes they may feel lonely or alone or rejected from their biological family. Many LGBTQIA plus people over their lifetimes develop what we call a family of choice. The people that we bring into our world who can love us and support us for exactly who we are, for our trans, non-binary, bisexual, asexual, polyamorous selves. And as we create that family of choice, we start to take ownership of our identity and who we are in the world. So sometimes working with clients as they're coming into a more positive self-description of themselves to list out who their current family of choice is, And how they want to continue developing that can be another great response to the trauma and hypervigilance they may have been experiencing. For some people, they may actually want to re-engage the coming out process with their family. Or for some people, they may be coming out to their families for the first time. So I encourage you to work with a client to develop a a coming out plan that works for them to be able to talk to their family in the way their family communicates. The other thing I say to that too, though, is or not. Because it's not our job to tell our clients they should come out again to their family or try and create a restorative environment. It's up to them. And if they decide this is something that they want to pursue then here's some things you can do. Sit down together, actually create a plan. How would you like this experience to go? Do you want to do it in a session? Do you want to do it at home? Do you want to do it with one parent versus another? Do you want extended family there? Do you want siblings there? Help them to design this coming out process in a way that would feel positive for them. And then practice that coming out conversation in session. Let them actually try the words out with you present, giving them positive and affirming responses to this. Also really important to explore with them the lack of control over their family's response. Remember, the only thing they can do is speak with integrity and honesty. How their family takes that gift of that integrity and honesty is up to the family and the dynamics that that family works with. So what we're trying to do is build our clients to a place where they can step over a trauma-based story and authentically present who they are. I do think it's important to discuss any potential safety issues that might come up because we always want to keep our clients' safety as one of our number one resources in the room. And once again, If they want to do that coming out process in the therapy room, then help them to expedite and set that family session up. And remember, it may not just be a one-time thing. It may be a, a continuation of care where you bring in people of the family to help your client grow and create this affirming conversation. So as we start to come to the close of our conversation today, what can you do? to create an LGBTQ affirmative space in your office, in your school, in your treatment center, in your business. First of all, don't assume that a client is heterosexual or cisgender. This is a social construct that those of us who are part of the LGBTQ community are constantly pushing against. And when you, as a clinician, have that assumption playing out either in the way you introduce yourself to clients, in your paperwork, and the way your office is set up, be aware that these are things that you need to work through, not your client. I want to encourage you to look inside and understand that people have the right to define their gender and sexual orientation, and when someone shares that with you, create place of respect. Respect people's gender identifications, respect their pronouns, respect their names, rather than trying to push against it or create commentary on it. As you walk around in the world, maybe you're willing to challenge anti-LGBTQ comments and conversations that you might overhear. To be willing to address the idea that maybe the words that are being said in that moment aren't kind towards people who are members of the LGBTQIA community. Listen to the stories and experiences of LGBTQ people. We have an amazing history. I always find it fascinating when people are talking about how, oh, being gay and lesbian and trans and bisexual is something new. It's not. Historically, it's been around for years and years and years and years. And when you dive into that history, it's actually kind of fun and exciting. Be willing to openly express your support for the LGBTQIA community. Be willing to do that with money with showing up for causes, with speaking at your local school board, with showing up and being part of the LGBTQ community so that support isn't just something that you say in the office, but shows up everywhere in the world. And what are some of the most supportive models that you can bring into this conversation? Well, I like to always go back to Carl Rogers. Ultimately, we may talk about all the trauma modalities that we bring into the the room. But the most important thing is to create that setting, to create that place of unconditional positive regard so that your client feels seen and heard at all moments. I like to take that a little bit farther and maybe look at expressing unconditional positive care, or sometimes I even go as far as expressing it as unconditional positive love. Be willing to affirm your support. Let your clients know that you are there to be on this journey with them. You know, I've been doing this work for many years. I'm a queer therapist myself, and sometimes I make mistakes in the room. But that's not a reason for us to end the relationship and the work. It's a place for me to take ownership of that miss that we just had, to apologize for it, and then to move forward together. I think one of the biggest mistakes people sometimes do, especially when it comes to names and pronouns, is when we misgender, misname someone, oftentimes people will go into this very, very big, like, oh, I'm so sorry, I messed up. I know you told me I should do better. And what's happening in that moment is we're making that moment all about us. Sometimes by simply taking a breath, saying, right, your pronouns are, I apologize. And moving on creates a space of affirming support. Don't assume. As we mentioned earlier, don't assume that everyone is cisgender and heterosexual. Because when we place that assumption in the room, we're actually creating a barrier for conversation and care. And whether someone comes in with issues about their coming out process and wanting to address any of the trauma or hypervigilance they're experiencing in the world, if we're not aware that being LGBTQIA+, may be part of the fabric of their life, then we're missing a huge component of who our clients are. And get educated. Today is one conversation on the myriad of possibilities of learning that one can do about supporting the LGBTQIA+, community in therapeutic environments. And just because you've taken one class, heard one podcast, attended one conference, That's not the end of it. It's an ongoing and growing conversation of building together, of working together, and creating a powerful sense of self in the room that allows you to humbly step forward and meet your clients where they are. Be willing to listen to what they have to say. Sometimes the best education comes from our clients telling you how their LGBTQ identity shows up in the world for them. To be willing to listen to those moments of pain, but to also be willing to listen to those moments of euphoria. To use the release of trauma in the body to allow a person to grow into a more beautiful, powerful, healthy version of themselves. So they can walk in an affirmed energy as a proud, out and open, LGBTQIA person. I want to thank you all so much for taking the time to join me today. Um, you can follow up with this and reach out to me if you have any curiosities or questions about this work. And I hope that you, by taking the time today to listen to this conversation, are opening yourselves up for the possibilities of becoming the most affirming LGBTQIA plus therapist you can be. Thank you so much for your time. And I look forward to sharing you again in the future. You've just finished listening to another exclusive Continuing Ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need Continuing Ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership where you'll have access to our growing library of Continuing Ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow and shine.